It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am honored today to have Joseph Holmes, a.k.a. JMM Love. And Joseph is a survivor of childhood sexual trauma and a disabled PTSD combat veteran who shares a very simple story that has benefited many people over the years. In 1991, Joseph's life turned upside down, a nervous breakdown followed by a period of depression ushered in a very dark night of the soul. Over time, he became aware of the angels around him, most notably Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene, and his healing from his past trauma began in earnest as Mary Magdalene began sharing her spiritual poetry, Love Notes for Your Soul, with him. It's a spiritual story of angel interventions and transformation available to all of us. An Amazon bestseller, author with over 45 books of Mary Magdalene's poetry published, Today, we will be discussing Joseph's most popular book, The Power of Angels, Volume 3, and how sharing your own personal angel stories can help you jumpstart your way to a happier, more fulfilling life. So welcome, Joseph. I'm so glad to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Joseph, what part of the world are you in? I'm in San Diego. San Diego. Is it nice down there? It's beautiful. I'm looking out the window now. I live out in the country, so just beautiful out here. Wonderful. How long have you lived there? Uh, 32 years. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, I am talking to you from the big sky state of Montana. Uh beautiful up here too. So Joseph, we, I read just a little bit of your bio, not all of it, because I didn't want to give away too much of our conversation. So um, I'm just curious as we jump in here, obviously your story and your writing is very spiritual. You told me you consider yourself spiritual, not religious. So I'm wondering what your faith background was like growing up. Well, my uh, mom was uh... Uh, first-generation Irish Catholic. Her parents came over from Ireland. Okay. Uh, I am, by the way, a, a dual citizen. I was born and raised in California, but uh, I'm also an Irish citizen by descent. Okay. And um, anyway, uh, she wasn't a practicing, um, you know, after she left home, she wasn't a practicing Catholic. Uh, but we occasionally went to Catholic church. But um the one thing I remember is she always um, burned the incense in the home. And, of course, that's a, an, a, 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 I was going to say Irish tradition, but a Catholic tradition. But, um, you know, she, I think she was more spiritual than she was Catholic, even though she was brought up to the Catholic school system and, and whatnot. Sure. So you guys didn't didn't attend mass then on a frequent basis? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. And what about your father's side of the family? Uh, I think he was agnostic. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So take me back a little bit to your childhood. You mentioned in your bio that you're a child, a survivor of childhood abuse. So can you tell me just a little bit about that, whatever you're comfortable sharing? Sure. Um, well, before my healing uh, by, Mar- by Mary, I call them M&M, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> before my healing by M&M, um, I, I never spoke about my molestations to anyone. So what that healing did for me was it opened me up. So it begins talking about it. And that's, you know, a, a big part of healing is being able to talk about your trauma. And uh, when I was, you know, and this might help your listening audience, uh, for the longest time, I thought molestation was somebody had to actually touch you. But as I've gone through therapy, I've learned that uh, when I was maybe seven years old, eight years old, a nurse, a female nurse, uh, made a sexual comment to me. Mm-hmm. And that was molestation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's where it began. I was, I, uh, when I was 12 years old, I was molested in the Seattle Public Library. Um, and a couple of years after that, I was uh, molested uh, by somebody uh, close to me. And uh, and then it stopped, you know. That by that time I was in high school, and uh, once I once I left high school, uh, I went a year of college and then into the army and then Vietnam. So so you never you never talked me. about it. Did you feel like it um, it affected you, or did you just kind of store it away and and just not ever deal with it? Well, it's uh, it's part of PTSD. You know, and one of the classic signs of PTSD is, um, you know, shame. And yeah. uh, you blame yourself for these things happening to you. And and you don't want to talk about it. You don't want, you're shameful about it. So you don't want to speak to anybody about it. And um, so that's, uh, that's where it was. And I noticed that uh, after the molestations, when I look back, uh, I see that I became uh, very moody and depressed mm-hmm. and withdrawn and, you know, antisocial. Okay. And not understanding the dynamics of it, I just thought I was weird. Mm. So, that it, so that even made things worse, right? Because That's more isolating, right? Yeah, the isolating and you're thinking you're weird because you're not like quote-unquote, normal people, right? Uh, so it all kind of just snowballs. And when you become an adult, uh, I think uh, I read one time where at the time that you're molested, uh, let's say you're 12 years old, uh, your emotional development stops. Right, it gets arrested because of right. that, yeah. Right, it gets arrested. So when you're an adult, you start reacting to things like you're a 12 year old, right? Right. And people and P and you and people don't understand why you're reacting this way. Right. 
Right. Which is, which is like you said, classic PTSD. I had a psychiatrist explain it to me once and said, Jill, when a trauma happened, you just kind of compartmentalized it like a book and put it up on the shelf and put it away. And then at some point, which, you know, you describe having a, having a breakdown at some point, Mm -hmm. the shelf breaks and you've got a mess on the floor is how he described described it to me, which what made visual sense to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So, um, and then you, as a, as a young man, how old were you when you went to Vietnam? So I was 19. So I went to, and, uh, you know, the, um, I want your listeners to know that not only do we have angels around us, but we also, but our angels send us earth angels mm-hmm. uh, to, to help us along the way. And so when I left high school, I went to a year of community college and, uh, you know, again, I, I was antisocial. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. I had a few friends from high school that came to college with me, but I wasn't a person who went out and made friends. And there was this uh, beautiful uh, Mexican woman who would come across the border every day to attend college. And, and I describe her as beautiful. She was like, a, I would say, an Aztec princess. If she walked into a room, people would stop and look at her. Mm. And she had that energy. And she, for some reason... We didn't have any classes together. She was an art major. I was an anthropology major. She befriended me. And the last, I was, on, uh, so we only had that year together as friends. And then I went into the army. But the last time I saw her, she was leaving the parking lot. She, she drove across with four of her friends. So she was in the back seat in the middle. And her friend and I was in the parking lot getting ready for another class. And her friend saw me. And her friend poked uh, Migdalia was her name, poked her and whispered to her. And Migdalia turned completely around in the car and with this ear to ear grin, just waved goodbye to me. She didn't know I was leaving for be for the army because I was going to tell her at another time, but then it never happened. And uh, but the reason I say this, her name was Migdalia. And I had a lot of Mexican friends. Uh, I had taken Spanish for three years in high school. I had never heard that name before, Migdalia. Mm. That was a very uncommon name. But she, because of that, she always, I always remembered her, right? Um, anyway, uh, so I, could you repeat your question? I kind of got lost. Oh, I'm just answer. talking about, we were just talking about you um, heading off to Vietnam. and, and okay. Uh, so, oh, okay, and Earth Angels. And, um, and this ties into doubts and fears, because uh, I believe there's what I call a trinity of creating a life full of uh, meaning and significance, joy, love, success. And that trinity involves, I believe, millions of people are in the closet with their angel stories. They're afraid to talk about them. 
for fear of ridicule or being labeled, ostracized. Uh, that's the, the first tier. The second tier is uh, your gift. And by the way, when we start sharing our angel stories, and if you don't have an angel story, you can share other people's angel stories. But once you begin talking about angels and sharing the stories, that lays the groundwork for your for healing of any trauma you have. And it also opens you up to discovering what your gift is to give to the world while you're mm-hmm. here. And so it's uh, so I call it a trinity. The first is um, is um, is sharing your angel stories, or if you don't have them, sharing somebody else's. Begin talking about them. Second is so coming out of the closet, and then finding out what your gift is. And then sharing your gift. And then the third part is the doubts and fears. Everybody's got doubts and fears. Everybody. Yep. So you have to deal with them. So uh, so kind of, you know, the doubts and fears kind of are involved in all three of those. You know, when you be when you want to come out of your closet, your angel closet, you're going to have doubts and fears. When you start sharing your gift, you're going to have doubts and fears. You know, but so it, it, doubts and fears yeah. never go away. It's how we deal with them. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so I um, I went to Vietnam. And uh, what was that? What was that like um, during that time in our country where it was such a controversial conflict? And um, as a 19 year old stepping into that arena, what was that like? Tell me the emotion of you know, well, of, of all of that. Yeah, it, it, you got to put it in the context that uh, there was a lot of assassinations going on at the time. You know, Medgar Evers was ambushed in his driveway and was killed. Um, and JFK was killed. Then Martin Luther King was killed. Then uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed. And it was taken, it was like the, the hope of that generation was just being dismantled. And then we had the Vietnam War, and there's a side of you that you know is protesting it, and there's a side of you that uh, wants to be, you know, wants to make the country better, and and you're young, <laughs> and you're idealistic, and mm-hmm. and at the t- and so I was in college uh, because they were not drafting college kids until I, I entered college and <laughs> they started drafting college <laughs> kids. So I had to make a decision. Do I go to Canada? I grew up in San Diego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do I go to Canada Yeah, <laughs> where it snows <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, other, other issues too with that, or uh, do I go in the, uh, and if I get drafted, I'm going to be a grunt, which means I'm going to be in the rice paddies. And I was not going to do that. Right. Um, so, so I joined. And uh, I went into the Army, uh, what they call the Army Security Agency, but it was like military intelligence. Okay. Still got, still got sent to Vietnam. And when I got to Vietnam, you know, you have to fly into Saigon, which was the capital of South Vietnam. 
you wait for your paperwork to come in to tell you where you're going to go in the country. And um, I was told I was going to go to play coup, which was up in the central highlands of South Vietnam. I didn't know play coup from Saigon, but you know, when I'm inside, everybody knows you're new because you're clean, right? Oh. <laughs> and, and so everybody's, the South Vietnamese are asking me, you know, every time I walk outside, where are you going? And every time I told them play cool, every single reaction was, oh, no, no, that's the worst place you can go. That's the most dangerous place in Vietnam. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? You know, that's where I'm going. So I get to play coup, and I hear that the month I, before I got to play coup, the Viet Cong had shelled our camp, and uh, several of the people were killed, and a bunch of people were wounded. Well, when I got there in May of 1969 to May of 1970, the whole 12 months, Two or three times a week, the air base next to us was hit by mortar rounds. Two or three two, times a week? Two or three times a week. Now, we were never hit. And it started to irritate us because every time the air base got hit, we had to go on higher alert, which means you have to get all your flak jacket and hit. You had to get down to the bunkers. You had to go on guard, you know. <laughs> and because we weren't getting hit, after a while, it became kind of an annoyance. And there's a complacency that evolves, you know. So I remember one time we went on alert, and we were just walking down to the bunkers. <laughs> and, and the CEO, the company commander, came by in a Jeep, and he yelled at us. He said, you know, get down to the bunkers. So, but that's how it really became dangerous uh, because it became so complacent. But for the whole year I was there, we never got hit uh, directly. Uh, the month before I got there, we were hit and lost, had some casualties. And the, and when I left uh, Play Coup, I had to go back down to Saigon to wait for my paperwork. And while I was in Saigon, I got word that the unit I worked in had taken a direct hit. And three of my friends who I worked side by side with were killed. Oh, wow. And so, but for the whole year I was there, we never took it, it, it you know. And this ties into um, after Mary Magdalene had begun. Uh, sending me these uh, love notes for your soul. Uh, your ego is, it doesn't matter how many signs, symbols you get, your ego wants to keep you out of your heart. Mm -hmm. And your heart is where your angels talk to you through. And so your ego always creates doubt. And I was having some doubt and so Mary Magdalene, whom I call Maggie, uh, she said, uh, look up Migdalia. Now, I hadn't thought about Migdalia in 30, 40 years, right? Yeah. She said, she said, look up Migdalia, look up the meaning. So I look up the meaning and it says flower. 
I said, well, yeah, that's, she was like a flower. Okay. So the next morning, Maggie says, look her up again. I said, but I looked her up. <laughs> and, you know, you, you can picture her rolling her eyes, right? She said, look her up again. Do it again. <laughs> so I look her up at a different source and it says, Magdalia, derivative of Magdalena. Mm. And Maggie told me that the reason she had sent Magdalia to me was so later when I have these doubts and fears, I would understand that she was protecting me in Vietnam. Mm. Mm. So it's still, it's still still emotional for me to this day when I describe it, you know. Right. So it was like this physical representation of. Yes. Of so, right. So our angels will send earth angels to us. Mm -hmm. And at the time, at the time, we may not know. Uh, well, we don't know who they are at the time. Uh, so it's, it's just wise to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> to, be nice, to be nice to people. <laughs> yeah. So take me back to um, 1991 when um, your life kind of turned upside down with a nervous breakdown. Tell me about that happening. What what were the events that led up to that? Well, in 1988, I had uh, I met a, a man, John Lawrence, and uh, he was in his 90s at the time. He asked me to come over and visit with him. Uh, he wanted to read my aura. That's, and uh, so I thought it might be interesting. I never had my aura read. I didn't know if I believed in auras. But, uh, you know, he was a nice guy. I wanted to meet him and learn about his history, life history. So I went over one Saturday morning. And we were meditating. And uh, during the meditation, he we were um uh, we had a coffee table between us. We were facing each other. He kicked the, one of the legs of the coffee table. And I didn't want to interrupt the meditation, but I want, you know, he was in his 90s. I wanted to make sure he was okay. So I kind of opened my eyes up just a little bit. And he, his eyes were wide like he, had, he was seeing a ghost and looking above my head. And I thought, well, okay, he's okay. So I just continued meditating. And then after the meditation, it was time for me to leave. And by the way, then he read my aura and I was really disappointed. <laughs> I remember thinking, ah, anybody could say this stuff, you know, but but I didn't say that out loud, but I was just disappointed. But anyway, when it was time for me to leave, he he excused himself and he came back and he get, he gave me uh, this. And it's a crucifix. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not religious, so it didn't have a religious meaning to me. Um, but he said, that's what I saw hovering above your head while we were meditating. I didn't know what to think of it, but, you know, I thanked him. I took it. I went up to my car and I closed the door of my car and bam, I was encased in this bubble of white light. And I stayed in that bubble for a week. I could not eat any solid food for a week. And then, quite, and then it slowly dissipated. And then I went into a deep depression because the contrast, you know, being in that mm. white light and then coming back into this, this mundane world. And that kind of led up um, from that point on, 
uh, I was getting signs that, you know, you need to change directions, you know, you need to start uh, offering your gift to the world, which I didn't know what it was at the time, but I ignored those signs. And that's the thing with the angels, right? They're, mm-hmm. very, they're very compassionate, they're very patient, and they give you signs and symbols. And, and if you keep ignoring them, then one day, bam, it's like a sledgehammer comes down. And that's what happened. I had a nervous breakdown. I walked away from my career, my livelihood. I have a five-acre estate here. So I just, for the next year, all I did was work the land. That was my therapy. And uh, and then as uh, as I, you know, came out of the the breakdown, I took this uh, breath work where uh, Mother Mary had come to me, and she showered me with beams of golden white light, and I didn't know it at the time that that was preparation for two days later, where I went into what I call these light regions and made the white light that I'd been in previously and made the white light look like kindergarten stuff. Mm. It was just these light regions. And I explained it one time to a Catholic and he said, oh yeah, you, you, you were in a state of rapture. So I thought, okay, that's it. Because when you have these experiences, we don't have the syntax to explain them to people, right? So he he said rapture, and I said, okay, that that's a good word. So I was in a state of rapture for five solid months. I couldn't work, I couldn't do anything. I, you know, I'm a kind of a quiet, reserved guy. I would walk, go into a, a supermarket, for example, and just out of the blue, with no warning, I just burst out with this laughter, this joy. And people would stop and look at me, but I couldn't control it. It was it would just come spontaneously. So I was in that state for five months. Then I came out of it and again had some depression because you know you're in that rapture and then you, you come out and you have to start dealing with, with the mundane work. And um so let me interrupt you for a minute. What did uh, your friends or your family or people around you, what did they think about what was going on? What was kind of the outward, you talk about spontaneous laughter and joy, and what was the outward representation and how did people respond to that? Well, because I had always been kind of a quiet, reserved person, they they were happy about it because they saw that I was I was not just happy. I was, I was in a state of rapture. I mean, I was overjoyed, you know. And so they thought it was a good thing. They were happy to see it. Um, it, it my my wife didn't appreciate that I wasn't working. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was a challenge. So I, so I can create some marital. Uh, issues, but you know, she was very understanding about it, and, and we were able to get through that period financially. So, um, but that led uh, to my swearing off the uh, uh, breath work and this type of therapy, you know, because I was tired of having these states of 
perhaps you enjoy than having the comeback. And coming and, down and crashing. And, well, yeah, and dealing with this mundane world. Um, but then a few years later, um, I had opened up a martial arts school. And uh, I had, um, there was an, I got a flyer or something, some announcement that said there was going to be breathwork at the Mission San Luis Rey, one of the original California missions in, in Oceanside, California. And that mission is uh, associated with Mother Mary. And I thought, <clears throat> I thought, well, maybe I could have a visitation from Mother Mary again if I attend this workshop. So I announced to my class that there wouldn't be any classes uh, the next day, Saturday. And I, that's all I told them. So I was going to a workshop, that's all. So I was locking up the dojo. And uh, one of the parents came up to me and said, why are you taking the workshop? And Jill, just out of the blue, without thinking, I said, oh, to meet Mary Magdalene. Mm. So I'm driving home and I'm thinking, Mary Magdalene. Where did that come from? Yeah, that I have no interest in her. I'm hoping to see Mother Mary again. So anyway, the next morning, the facilitator says, it's eight in the morning. The facilitator says, okay, we're going to start doing some breath work. We're going to do it sitting up in the chairs. <clears throat> and that's not how it happened originally with Mother Mary. So I'm, you know, my ego saying, oh, no, I, this isn't going to work. I have to be lying in the ground, you know. This and that, but you know, I'm not going to disturb the the workshop. So I go ahead and I start into the breath work, sitting up in the chair. As soon as I do, now people ask me, well, "How did these appear?" And they appear in semi-physical form. That's the syntax I use. But Mother Mary looked around the corner of the doorway. And she smiled and she like, like, you know, like she was riding on a broom, but she didn't have a broom. You know, it was like, <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> right, right in front of my face. And she had Mary Magdalene with her. And they had these long black capes on. And they started circling me with these black capes and giggling and laughing, just having a, fun with me. And then, uh, Mary, now I'll distinguish to when I say Mary, I'm talking about Mother Mary. I'm talking about Mary Magdalene. I, I call her Maggie. So Mary tells me to, uh, she says, I want you to lie on the floor. I'm thinking, I can't lie on the floor. Everybody's sitting up. Right? <laughs> as soon as she said that, the facilitator said, everybody to the floor. So I went to the floor, and that's when uh, my head was in Mary's lap. Maggie, Mary Magdalene was above me, and she came down, entered my body, and healed me of the childhood molestations. Then they left. And but from that point on, I uh, Mary Magdalene would uh, make herself known to me occasionally. And when that was in like 2005. And in 2012, December 2012, she woke me up around 2 a.m. She told me to sit at the table with a pen and paper, and she started dictating this quatrain poetry, four stanza poetry, just spiritual poetry with no 
religious overtones. And she's been doing that every morning since 2012. Mm. And some mornings she gives me, I use this uh, yellow legal pad so I can get six poems to a page. And sometimes she'll do one page. The most she's done is uh, uh, 65 poems. So like 11 pages, you know, nonstop, just you know, two hours of, of transcribing. But, um, you know, I want to really emphasize the doubts and fears because that's what stops most people. And in April, so this started in December. In April, I started having some serious doubts about the origin of these Love notes. We were calling them love notes from Maggie, from Maggie, mm-hmm. because back in December, she had I had uh, asked her, "Do you mind if I call you Maggie?" And I said, "I know it's not a nickname for Magdalena, but you know, I've always loved the name. Would you mind?" She said, "No, you can call me Maggie." Well, okay, so we start calling these uh, poems love notes from Maggie. In April, a few months later, I start having serious doubts. And I kind of give her a demand. I say, I want something concrete. I want proof that these are coming from you. I don't want something nebulous. I don't want a fuzzy picture. You know, that I want something that nobody can refute. And, you know, a day went by and nothing happened. A week went by and nothing happened. A month went by. She's not answering me. But the poems keep coming every morning. So, you know, I'm dutifully transcribing every morning. Then in July, she says, I want you to publish these. Uh, And I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to publish these, maybe I should get some reviews. All right. And I don't want to go to my friends because, you know, I want some honest reviews. Right. (laughs) Right. And so I go to this website that has thousands of people that give, offer different services like Photoshop and voiceovers and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, I can't read through all these things. So you know, I'm very visual. So I, I thought, I'll just go through the photos. And if I see a photo of somebody that I like, I'll stop on. So I'm quickly going through all these photos. And then this photo of this woman comes by and I stop on it. And her name is Angelina. Hmm. And she provides service, but it wasn't um, a review or anything like that. But something told me to contact her. So I sent her an email. And I just told her about I had these poems. I told her nothing about Mary Magdalene. I said, I'll pay you for your time to read them. And if you're moved to give me a review, I would appreciate it. But you're not obligated to. But I'll pay you for your time. And she writes back and she says, well, no, that's not what I do. <laughs> so you would think I would go on, right? Somebody else, but something told me to stay with her, right? Something, Maggie, right? Told me to stay with her. So we go back and forth for a few days. And finally, she writes back and she says, okay, send me some poems. So I sent her, when, this time when I sent her the poems, I told her about Mary Magdalene and Maggie uh-huh. and me calling her Maggie. And, there, and the poem's being called Love Notes from Maggie. Well, she writes back the next day and she says, Joseph, 
I have to tell you something. He says, I love these poems, but I'm gonna tell you something. You're not going to believe me, so I will send you proof. He says, my name is Angelina because that is the name my father wanted to call me. But when I was born, my mother named me legally Mary Magdalena. Mm. Wow. And then her last name. So Mary was her first name. Magdalena was her middle name. And she said, Anne, while I was growing up, my best friends called me Maggie. And I said, wait a minute. I said, Maggie's not a nickname for Magdalena, is it? I wanted to make sure. And she said, no, it's not. But one day, one of my best friends called me Maggie. I loved it. From that point on, just my close friends called me Maggie. And then she sent me a, a photo of her passport to prove that her name was Mary Magdalena. And and then the next night I got this poem, the next morning, Maggie woke me up and she sent me this poem, which is on the back, which is on the back of the book, of volume three. And she wrote, ah, Joseph, when things like this happen, it is magical and fun. Angelina to Magdalena to Maggie, who would have thought? And from across the sea, and we even look alike, so run, my dear, and jump and sing, that when you look at her, you are seeing me. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? And, and then, that is beautiful. So yeah. how did you how did you get past that ego and doubt and fear to go ahead and publish? Well, for years. I fought my ego. And whenever you fight your ego, ego always wins. Mm. Because ego knows how to fight. That's its sole mission, is to fight your heart and to keep you out of your heart, keep you away from your destiny. And so there came a point and I believe when Maggie entered me at the church, at the mission, it kind of opened this up for me, that only love is real. That's, that's my moniker, J-M-M, love. J is mm -hmm. for Joseph, M-M is for Mary Magdalene, and love, unconditional love, is her message to the world. And so I stopped fighting my ego and befriended it. So every time a doubt comes up now or a fear, instead of wrestling with it and beating myself up because, you know, I'm having these doubts and, you know, what's wrong with me? And, you know, now I just befriend it. So every time uh, ego shows itself in any of its disguises, right? Uh, I just thank it. Mm. Thank you for reminding me for going back to my heart. And then I consciously move my energy back to my heart. Hmm. And when you do that, you open your heart up to listen to your angels. 
And your angels are just messengers of God, of source, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's so, how I overcame it. What would you say to people who uh, doubt angel stories and doubt that those kinds of encounters? Well, to understand what doubt is. Doubt is a this is ego ego shows up in many different disguises. It will show up in uh, you know just fear of um, knowing what your gift is, uh, fear of sharing your gift to the world, uh, uh, fear that there might be angels. What does that mean if there are angels? Um, I mean, ego just shows up in, in a lot of different ways. Shows up as anger. Mm. Uh, shows up as reaction. Uh, shows up as depression. You, you know, it has a lot of disguises. But uh, my answer to that is just acknowledge that your ego wants to keep you out of your heart and it's your heart that that has your destiny mm. you know i mean you don't have to believe in angels um just follow your heart <laughs> if, if if you don't believe angels exist and if you don't believe that angels speak to you through your heart that's okay that's just how it happened with for me you don't have to believe that, but I think everybody believes the concept that you can follow your heart. Yeah, right. right? I mean, that's that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty universal, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so I just say, you know, if, if you can't get your head around angels, just follow your heart. Yeah. Well, I think that is a beautiful note to kind of end on and to and to wrap up how do people get a hold of your book it's on amazon it's on amazon it um you can either go to jmm love just put in jmm love but that's going to give you all my books okay but for this but this book my most popular the power of angels in the search bar at amazon just put in the power of angels volume three make sure you put okay. volume three because angels is a is a, is a very popular subject so if you don't put in volume three you're going to get all kinds of angel books so put in the power of angels volume three and that will bring it right up to you great and, and it's in uh, paperback and digital form okay great well thank you for sharing your story and um your perspective and how how your spirituality has been formed. I really um, I'm honored I'm honored that you would share that. Well, thank you, and I encourage. I hope by telling my angel stories, it helps people come out of their angel closet. If they want to start sharing with me, if that's safer for them, they can uh, email me at joseph at jmmlove.com, and I'll awesome. be happy. I'll be excited to to receive any angel stories. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Joseph. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for what you're doing.
Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email jill at jillriley.org.